You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. Once you have your Bibles, then go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12 is where we'll focus our attention. It's right there tucked in the middle of your New Testament. If you're in like the book of Acts, keep going. If you hit Hebrews, turn around and uh, look uh, uh, behind you there. As you're finding it, uh, uh, how many of you have seen the uh, movie Nacho Libre? <laughs> this is a favorite of, of mine, and there's a scene in uh, Nacho Libre. If you're unfamiliar, it's a, a story of, a, of an aspiring luchador, a wrestler, and, uh, uh, who, is a, who is a Roman Catholic priest. And uh, there's a scene in that uh, movie where uh, Nacho and his wrestling partner, Escaletto, have yet again been uh, defeated in the wrestling ring. And after the match in exasperation, Nacho exclaims, I want to win. For he, like none of us, like to lose. Nobody likes to lose after expending effort, match after match, day after day. Nobody relishes defeat. Even now that football season is starting, nobody likes to root for losing teams, do we? We all want to win. We all want to succeed. And in sports, it is often pretty black and white as to who wins. If you score more points, you win. (laughs) Always the exceptions, indeed. In business, if you control the most market share, you're the most successful. In politics, if you gain the most votes, you win the office, right? But what about in the church? What about amongst what we do here as God's uh, uh, people here? What defines success as this uncommon community of Jesus followers that God has gathered here at, at redemption? What are the rules or the standards by which God measures? Are we doing what is right? Are we doing what is true? Are we doing uh, what honors God that he would define as success? And as I've shared with you last week and through just conversations, I spent much time this summer just before the Lord, in prayer, in His Word, asking these kind of questions. Not just watching Nacho Libre and things like that, but... And asking these questions not because it's just some kind of competition. This is trying to be better than one church or another. No, no, no. But I, asking these questions as we uh, proceed into this fall and into the future as a church, because I believe that uh, all of us want our lives to have purpose. We want to be part of a church that is truly living uh, to the glory of God. We make these claims about being vertical, but are we actually being glor- uh, going vertical? Are we actually glorifying Him through the fulfillment of the Great Commission? How do we know if we are doing that properly? There are all kinds of metrics and 
measurements which we could track and, and, and which honestly we do track as a, as a church. Things like attendance and finances and social media engagements and, and baptisms and small groups and classes and ministries and, and those things. But what I would submit to you this morning as we look at God's word, what I would submit to you this morning is that what matters most to God can't be truly measured. In the same way that we think about points and votes and things like that, for how do we truly measure transformation in a person's life? How do we truly measure genuine spiritual uh, maturity, God's people um, uh, maturing and multiplying to the glory of God? See, for success in God's economy is measured in terms of faithfulness and fruitfulness. And those things aren't mutually exclusive nor polar opposites. It's not a matter of just being faithful and tending to things that we are or be having the most and being the most fruitful. But it's both of these biblical concepts of faithfulness and fruitfulness coming together. And so just very simply, just write this down here. It's the center point of the text in our message this morning is that vertical faithfulness and fruitfulness matter most to God. In terms of success, in terms of his glory, his vertical faithfulness and fruitfulness matter most to him. And now I know those are terms that maybe we throw around that have a multitude of definitions or things, but let me just uh, uh, define them. So we're speaking in, uh, uh, on the same terms uh, here. When it comes to faithfulness, you can write this down, or here it is on the screen. Faithfulness here is just this, consistently stewarding the responsibility that God gives us. That's what it means to be faithful, consistently stewarding the responsibility that God gives to us as his people and as his church. Just think uh, briefly with me. You can read it this week in 1 Corinthians 3 and and in chapter 4. uh, Paul brings this to the surface and teaches this church here. He tells them, he says, hey, in chapter 3, I planted, Apollos watered, but it is God who causes the growth. And so whether your responsibility in the economy of God is just to plant or to water or to fertilize or to weed the garden, whatever it is, we just consistently show up doing the responsibility that God has given us. He'll then begin chapter 4 in 1 Corinthians as saying, what are, how are we then to regard each other but as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God? The gospel, the good news of that Jesus saves sinners were just stewards of that and what is it that is required of a steward but to be found faithful we don't own the gospel we don't own people we don't own these uh, the earth in which we live we're just stewards faithfully consistently stewarding the responsibility that God has given us fruitfulness then is tied right to it write this down it's also here on the screen fruitfulness then is just faithfully multiplying that responsibility that God has given us It's not just managing or here, burying our talents in the ground, as Jesus brings out in Matthew 25. But no matter whether you're given 10 or 5 or 1 or some other number of of talents or responsibilities in the things of God, what gets the commendation of the master, of King Jesus in the end, are those who are fruitful, who bear fruit, who are faithfully multiplying the responsibility that God gives. What brings his, uh, his, his uh, admonishment, not, and, and, and maybe even his, his rebuke, as he calls the wicked servant, the one who takes the responsibility and just buries it without any sort of bearing fruit. 
And so if these things, now that we're kind of on the same page here, thinking about uh, then the scriptures, okay, where do these things come together? This is the premise uh, that uh, we're thinking about. Well, how then do these things come together? Where is a practical section in our Bible that teaches us how to be faithful, how to be fruitful with the things of life? How do we devote our lives then to these things that matter most to living according to God's standards? And that's why I asked you to turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, because I think our verses here really bring these two concepts together, took near the end of 1 Thessalonians. It's, it's, it's Thessalonica was a young church that Paul, the Apostle Paul had himself planted. He had spent time there teaching them. He loved these people. This is a book I, I preached in our first year, right after we planted as a church as well. And so enough about that. Let's just read the text here because I want you to see it and then let's, uh, let's get into it uh, more closely here. Everybody found it? 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. Hopefully you found it in your Bible. In mine, it's on page uh, 1,207. I don't know what's on your page, but that's where it is. Let me read it for you. It says this, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, this is God's word for God's people and a fantastic text here that, like I said, I think leads us forward as a vertical church fired up about the glory of God, seeking to uh, fulfill the, the, the great commission. It is these commands in this verse that really then should define who we are. They, they give us a picture of what vertical faithfulness and fruitfulness really look like. Here's the first thing. It's in your notes. Write this down here. But we must love one another sacrificially. And hopefully, even as I say that, it's so obvious from verses 9 uh, and uh, 10 here that this is what we are to do, to love one another sacrificially. And, and this flows right out of what we discussed last week, right? What was it, if you were here uh, last week, what was it that we uh, surveyed in that large section of the Old Testament? The steadfast love of God that endures forever. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you, you can listen to that online or find it on our podcast here. But over and over and over in our uh, Old Testament is this anthem on repeat in every situation. His steadfast love endures forever, forever, ever, in every situation. How many, how many of you, that was just like on repeat in your own mind this week? It was in mine, I think, was in yours, and just a reminder of these uh, truths. And so we know uh, that God loves us, and it's out of the overflow of that we love because what? Because God first loved us, and out of the overflow of that now come these commands to we who follow the Lord, to love one another. But there's a specific love here, uh, two different uh, specific uh, versions of love in this text that we have to uh, really understand in the text. And so the ESV does a good job in, in verse 9 here of, of bringing one of those out of this brotherly love. In Greek, it's uh, phileo. And then later, in, uh, in, at the end of verse 9, he says, we've been taught by God to love one another. That in Koine Greek is agape. 
a, a sacrificial, unconditional love that ultimately and perfectly God has for us who are his, his, his children. And, and we too then are called to show this kind of sacrificial, unselfish love to the brothers and sisters around us. And so both of these things uh, are in view here. Now in English, uh, we really, uh, the, the curators, maybe we should say, of the English language have done us a disservice because we have one word to capture the whole swath of the things that we have affection for, right? Like we say, I love my wife, and we also say, I love this cheeseburger, and those are two very different things of love, right? And yet we only have one word. The, the curators of Koine Greek, the, what our New Testament was uh, written in, and the Greek language in that, they had four different words for love. Two that I just told you, the phileo love, a brotherly love that's used in the scripture to describe the love that exists amongst the family of faith uh, within the church and, and amongst God's people. The agape love, that uh, Zeus of God and, uh, uh, and uh, towards his people, that sacrificial love. There's two others not found in our Bible, but existent in those days. An eros, love, the intimate love between a husband and wife. And then a storge, uh, love, a, a love that is familial, like a parent towards their uh, kid. And the love that a father has for a child. And so they just have different to differentiate the, the types of love. But what is in view here in the scripture is our love for the people around you. The love for uh, those who follow uh, Christ. That's uh, what he's speaking of here. And it's interesting here as he uses this kind of tactic in rhetoric. He's saying, now concerning this kind of brotherly love, you don't have need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God. And so like, what, what is he getting at here? Did the church in Thessalonica like, have God as the instructor? They all gathered for class and God was there. And, and uh, that would be kind of cool. I, I, I imagine, I guess that's maybe what heaven is going to be like, right? Like we'll just be consistently taught by God. But what he's getting at here is they've been taught by God in this command to love one another in a, in a multitude of senses. There's an intrinsic sense, an intri- that's a, a love that is just intrinsic to the soul that is just that happens as we, uh, when we come to faith. A supernatural love for the brothers and sisters that didn't exist uh, before your conversion. Right? How many of you, when you came to Christ, when, you, when God opened your eyes to the depth of your sin and the glory and forgiveness that is available in Jesus Christ and eternal life offered in him, and as he worked that transformation in your heart, now all of a sudden you wanted to be around other Christians. You wanted to know and to love them and to serve them. That's something that God just works supernaturally in us. It, it's just something that is intrinsic to our soul. In the same way, you know, that, uh, that a parent doesn't necessarily need to take a class on uh, how, to, how to love uh, his or her kids, right? You know, like, Eric, when, when, uh, you know, when any of your four kids were born, did somebody have to say, hey, Eric, you have to love your kids? Yeah. Like, you just, just knew, right? Every parent in the house knows that, that feeling. Like, now you have this kid. There's, like, these competing feelings of, man, I love this kid a ton, and I don't even know him, and this overwhelming sense of, like, responsibility, like, what did I just get myself into? Like, now I have to take care of this, uh, this human being that I'm now responsible for. But there's this intrinsic sense. And so he's saying, you, you just, the, the Spirit has put this. You've been taught in this way. And another sense of being taught by God is the very, we've been instructed by His Word, right? 
And we have the Bible, the Thessalonians had uh, the Old Testament, and maybe some of these Pauline epistles had uh, circulated to them already, but they've been taught how to love one another. What's the greatest commandment? And the second greatest commandment, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it to what? To love your neighbor as yourself. They've been instructed in these things all throughout the scriptures. You find these commands. They knew it. They've been taught in this uh, verse. They have the, the, we we know like the new commandment we'll get to there in, in a few weeks and in, uh, in John chapter 13, as we come back to John uh, next week, but you have it just all over the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, 1 John 3 and 4, and many others. And so we've been taught by God, both intrinsically and instructed, but, uh, but who else or where else do we find the greatest example but the incarnation of Jesus Christ? Him, Jesus, uh, God, the second person of the Trinity, becoming flesh, incarnate, uh, leaving the comforts of heaven's throne and all the glory there to come and exist in the chaos of earth. What would motivate uh, God to do that, to to come and lay down his life on a cross for people that hated him? What is it that would propel God out of the grave to rise again, defeating death, and, and, and thus giving us a hope of eternal life? What is it that would keep God interceding daily on our behalf before the throne? What is it that is behind all of the providential workings of our God, working all things to his glory and our good? What is it that would motivate and move our God? but love, love for us, love for you, love for me, love uh, for uh, a harassed and helpless creation that would result in his exaltation, that would result in his glory on repeat over and over. So it is his love that instructs us. It is his love then that is uh, our example. It is his love that is the most faithful and fruitful uh, uh, demonstration of love in everything. And this too we have. We've been taught by God to love one another. This hopefully isn't new to you today. Maybe you're new to Christ and this whole concept and how it plays out is new. But hopefully the command to love one another is nothing novel uh, to you today. You've, you have it. You have God's commands here. You're capable of showing it. And in, like in the text here, as, uh, as the Thessalonian believers are commended for how they demonstrate that, both amongst their church family, but look at how it says, to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. That's the larger region in which the city of Thessalonica finds itself in. And so it's like all throughout the, you know, the hill country region or something that we might say, or central Texas, or through the state of Texas, they are to be uh, commended. And so too are you, church. For the ways in which you have shown love through your lives, through your service to other believers in your own neighborhood. To the people in, uh, you know, in other churches that gather around our own city. To our church plants, the love and the generosity that you have shown to a living hope. 
giving of your time, talent, and treasure to see that church planted. And now in Magnolia, as we uh, uh, come alongside Hill City Church and that core group there and the GCC, the Great Commission Collective that we're a part of across the globe, both here in Texas and all over the place, the generous and familial love for the multiplying work of God is commendable. But here's the thing. It can't stop also. It is not as though we have arrived in the same way that our love for our spouse uh, doesn't just, we don't just tell them, hey, I love you on our wedding day and then never stop showing it. It is to continue on. That's why he urges them. See how verse 10 ends? But we urge you, we compel you, we implore you, brothers and sisters, that's the family here to do this more and more. Their love, your love is commendable and can't stop. It can't stop. We have to keep on, on, on excelling so more. We can't settle or otherwise we're, we're moving in the wrong direction. Otherwise, then we're not heading vertical in faithfulness and fruitfulness to the, uh, in the things of God. Love isn't just a season in which we live, but it is to be the consistent character of our lives, doing this more and more. And now, obviously, love shows up in how we live our lives and the actions, and the things that we do. And I think if we all put our heads together, if we circled up the chairs, we could come up with countless ways in which to show people love to one another. And that would be a great exercise. How, how, do we, how do we tangibly do this more and more, more specifically? I encourage you to do that, even in your small groups. How do we love one another? How do we love our city? How do we serve one another in this way? But beyond this, that, what is it that motivates our heart? Is a genuine, sacrificial, agape love for God, for one another, that really moves us. And so I want us just to just take a moment to ask some diagnostic questions of our own heart. They're here on the screen. You can write them down. They'll be in the pulpit curriculum uh, this week here. But let's just think for a moment here of our, the heart of our love for one another, for the people sitting around you uh, right now. For the people in your small group that maybe you don't know as well, ask these questions. What is it? It's like, do I want to know them? Get to the court. Like, do I really, what, what is, the, where the distance, do I, do I want to know this person? And secondly, can I just see beyond the obvious differences uh, in, in their life to understand their, their heart? Knowing that maybe they're born in a different decade, they dress a little different, they speak a little differently. Can I see beyond the obvious differences on the exterior to really understand their heart? Do I want to do that? Can I see? Will I put their interests ahead of mine? Speaking to the sacrificial nature of this love, am I willing to uh, go uh, uh, beyond my own interests to put theirs ahead of mine? And am I doing this here, number four, am I doing this because I genuinely desire their spiritual growth? Because I want to see them move from being saved to matured to multiplied. Do I genuinely desire that? And last, am I willing to, uh, to do what I can if, to help if I'm asked? Am, am I willing to step into that? And I, and I think this is an important question for us here because, you know, what, what I'm not advocating here is that we just all become like a bunch of stalkers, right? Or we're just like, you know, like, ooh, I'm going to go get to know that guy or whatever. And we just like insert ourselves into, into people's lives. But are we motivated by love out of a, a genuine desire to know and to serve and to help uh, where we can? 
If we're asked as we come alongside, if the answer is yes to these things, praise God, let us excel more and more. And if there's ones that answer no, then, uh, then this is the area where, praise God, where we can continue to grow in this family of faith and where we can put them into action through relationship with one another. Through living here, whether through uh, just conversations or through service from them, whether through biblical good words or biblical good works. Better if it's both of those things coming together through encouragement and service as we love one another in these ways, both faithfully and fruitfully, just loving one another to the glory of God. Let us excel still more going vertical in this way. But it doesn't just stop there. Love is what propels us forward. But look at the second way in verse 11 that this works out. Write this down. We also live among one another simply. We live among one another simply. And hopefully as you kind of take the three commands in this verse, you can see how that, is a, uh, how that sums up the three uh, commands here. To live among one another simply. And maybe it seems like there's a turn. We've just been talking about love. How does all this uh, fit? Why is, he, you know, why is Paul even writing in this way? Well, here's where I think some context that he's writing about to really grasp the point here. The church there in Thessalonica, Paul had been in. Apparently he had taught them or somebody else had come in and taught the, the, this, these believers about the end times, about Jesus' return, about his imminent, uh, glorious return that we await uh, with uh, eager expectation. Do we not, church? We await this, and yet they were still confused. So much so, some apparently thought they had missed it, and he's going to clear that up in the next section. If we were preaching through this, or you go and read through, you'll see immediately after this passage, he clears up some of the things that they can uh, expect about what is to come in the end. Bible really talks about the end times in terms of expectations and less in terms of explanations, all right, about what we can expect for these times. And so he lays it all out here. But see, here's the thing. Some had, in misunderstanding it, had either like stopped working altogether or were just so anxious about it that they weren't doing anything here. They were fearful and fretting instead of living faithfully and fruitfully to the glory of God. Apparently, they were like watching too much Fox News of, of the day or scrolling through their own uh, uh, social media or sucked into YouTube videos or reading too many blogs that they were just like worked up in all the wrong ways. And it's that what he's, he's addressing here and what he's, he's, what, he's, what he's saying. He's like, hey, 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 like chill out. Live simply. You don't get caught up into the hysteria and the frenzy that is, is so common in our day and age. We're not so much different, even as I explain that now. We're not a whole lot different than the people of God in those days. But he just says, live simply and aspire to this. And he gives these three commands. Do you see him there? Look what it says in verse 11. First, to aspire to live quietly. Now, all of us in here, I imagine, have ambitions of some sort. Maybe you're early on in, in school and, and you are studying and you have aspirations to be successful in your career. Or maybe you're new into your career and you're working for this company and, and you have ambitions to continue to improve and excel and to, uh, to, to gain in that career. Maybe you, you're beyond that and you're near the end of your working days or maybe you're even in retirement now and you have some aspirations for your retirement. Do any of those aspirations involve living quietly? 
And so what is he getting at here? We have lots of aspirations. We have lots of ambitions, like just very plainly and specifically. He's just talking about, like, don't be a pain. Don't be loud and obnoxious and worked up all the time. But rather aspire to be a person of contentment. For godliness with contentment is of great gain. It, 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 it speaks to a, an aspiration to be content in the sovereignty of God through all things. To not being overly worked up and making sure everybody knows what you are feeling and thinking and, and, and to, 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 to just live loud. But no, as in whatever phase of life you're in, to be a person of contentment. Again, confident in the sovereignty of God. Connected to this is the second one, to mind your own affairs. Maybe you read this and you're like me and you have you know, a voice in the back of your head where you see this and you hear, can hear someone just saying, oh, mind your own business, right? And to an extent, that is what he's talking about. You, like, hey, you don't need to insert yourself in everybody's business with the, with the purpose of just getting them worked up. The biblical word for this is meddling, to be, to be meddlesome here. But rather, what he's talking about, minding your own affairs, he's not, he's not he's, don't do that, but he's also not just talking about, okay, hey, live this isolated, independent, you know, minding your own uh, business, disconnected kind of life. No, what he's getting at here is that we're to be diligent with the responsibility that God has given us. For the gifts and the, the talents, the time and the treasure to be diligent in these responsibilities to, uh, to, to be, uh, here's the thing here, to be faithful with the things that God has given us. I see this starting to come out here to mind your own affairs, to be faithful with what he has given you to do, and then to be fruitful, to work with your hands. The third one that kind of rounds all this out as they had been instructed. And so what's he getting at here? To work with your hands? Is this a, some sort of like uh, uh, instruction to all of us to become carpenters? Hey, y'all, you got to be carpenters. Whatever industry you're in now, hang it up. Nope. No, I don't. That's not what he's getting at here. The emphasis really is on work here. Like think of the Old Testament concept, the the work of God's hands, the activity, the productivity, the fruitfulness of your life. Let your life be productive, fruitful with the responsibilities that God has given you. Yes, in your job. Yes, in your work. Not lazy and idle. uh, Just, you know, sitting at your computer, hiding from the boss and meeting the minimums. No, that's not how we work. We have a good work ethic, but in the overall uh, uh, character of our life, we are living fruitfully on mission for the Lord. And I think as you see these commands here and this idea to live simply, you can see that this is really at odds with the world around us, with the culture in which we live. For God's people have always lived against the stream, against the flow, counterculturally to the pace and the priorities of the world around us. For what does our world aspire to today? What is our culture here? Uh, not to live simply, but to jump into the frenzy, trying to avoid the end and the reality of our humanity and the limits that we have. 
They don't inspire the world. The culture around us doesn't tell us to live quietly, but to make a name for yourself, to win at all costs, to be the boss uh, of everybody and, and, uh, you know, and, and, and slave of none. It doesn't teach us to mind our own affairs, but rather we're told to respond to every comment on Facebook. Now, don't just respond. Make your opinion known on your social media and everything to meddle, to gossip. The aim of this world is not to work with your own hands, but to have others take care of you. Don't take responsibility. Don't do things. You make enough money. You set it all aside so that you don't have to work, so you can do whatever you want, and you can just pay others to do it. I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't tell us to make money, that we can't pay others. That's not it. But what is it that is motivating us? What is our aspirations? What are, where are our ambitions lies? Is it to be faithful and fruitful with the things of the Lord? To live simply? To say it concisely? Or to use everybody else and to just go about life without any thought for anybody around us. See, it's not the pace of believers because it's not the pace of Jesus. See, our, the world lives, we, we live in a hurried, frantic, I need it now society. But it is the pace and the priorities of Jesus who himself showed us how to live and minister simply to be faithful to the mission and fruitful beyond measure. So we see the pace of his life, the, uh, the, the, the priorities in his life to the gospel of loving others uh, to perfection, of living a life of this way. And you know what? His manner of life, his words, his work are still reverberating in, uh, across the globe in such a way that, that it's still bringing him much glory. And so as you are assessing here, as you're thinking on these commands in your own life, okay, well, what is it? Where do I need to, in my life, slow down? Where is it that I need to quiet down? Where is it that I need to get to work so that my priorities are loving sacrificially, living simply, faithfully and fruitfully, to the glory of God. Verse 12 tells us why this is an important question. Culminates with the significance in these commands here, right with the first two words of verse 12. What does it say? So that. It's a purpose clause. Anytime you see that in the Bible, just write it down so you know, okay, we're saying these things so that, why? So that you may walk properly. Write this down. It's our third point. So that we walk among outsiders properly. And so what is he getting at here? Again, let's just kind of define some terms here. Walk is, in, is a way to, to describe our manner of life. It's not talking about, you know, the way that we saunter through life, right? The speed, whether you're a runner, a pacer, a walker, you've got some sort of swagger to your step. He's talking about the manner of our life, how we live, and is it, is it, is it proper in other words, is it decent? Is it, is it, is it right? Is it, is it uh, uh, in line with God's ways? You know, is it, is it orderly? 
And he talks about outsiders here, those that have not yet professed faith in Christ. Not because Christianity is some, like, insider clique, right? Like, hey, we're the insiders, and all those other jokers out there, you know, they're all the outsiders. No. But those who are outside currently, the family of faith, until we get the opportunity to tell them about Jesus. So I, so we walk properly and are dependent on no one. And so it's important, like you see, church, we live in a watching world more than ever. People watch our every word, our, our every action, our every post, our, our every move, our every, uh, uh, our every purchase. If you buy things on, on Venmo and you don't uh, you know, have your security settings, somebody can go on and see everything that you've paid for on Venmo, the people in which you've paid. And people, people watch this. They watch how we are as Christians, how we live our life. And unbelievers, I think, want to know what difference following Jesus makes. All right, I've heard the gospel. I've heard this good news that Jesus saves sinners. But what difference does it make? For loveless, obnoxious, meddlesome, lazy Christianity uh, repels people from Jesus. That the, and, and here's the thing, here's, here's why. That life is available to unbelievers. That's what is everywhere in the world around us. I don't, what, 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 the, what is God offering? That's unattractive. I don't need that. I can get that anywhere. But see, as we love sacrificially and live simply in a way that is so countercultural to the glory of God, that then is attractive. That then speaks to a world that is losing its mind, that's losing its soul, that's redefining everything. And so ask this question of your own life. Be real. If you were an unbeliever, could an unbeliever say this about you? If If following Jesus looks like that person's life, then I want that. If following Jesus looks like my life, then I, I, I want to live that kind of life. Obviously, it is God who saves sinners. It is God who does this work. But these are real questions as we seek to be faithful and fruitful to the glory of God. Because if the answer is no to that question, then what is it that you need sanctified? What is it that God needs to do in your life? What needs to shift to better point people vertical to the glory of God? And praise God, this isn't a a question to beat us up or to make us feel bad about ourselves. Praise God for the community of faith in which we grow, right? Praise God that we are also in progress. And even in saying this, we can just offer that to, uh, to unbelievers. Like, yeah, God isn't expecting me to be perfect. Thank him for his grace that he has given me in every moment to make much of Jesus and to grow in him. And I'm just trying to be faithful. I'm just trying to bear fruit with an unafraid witness. I just want to do that. And that's what he's, he's after here. This isn't, don't make the mistake here of reading those like last few uh, words of, of verse 12 and be dependent on no one. This isn't like some sort of vision for isolationism or like of personal independence in our own life. It's not like minding your own affairs. That's not what he's, he's talking about here. Think of the context. What is it that he's, he's talking about? To what uh, uh, problem is he speaking of? Those that are lazy and loveless and, and, and in the frenzy here. He says, no, we're not, uh, we're not just depending upon others to do the work, nor are we just depending upon others to do the witness. 
See, this, how this looks in our own life is just being dependent upon like, uh, you know, the church programs or paid pastors to share the gospel with your neighbor or coworkers. To take the opportunities to love and serve the people that God has put in your life. No, each of us has a responsibility to shine the light of Christ with the people that he puts in our life. Be dependent on no one else, but rather let your love amplify, not rather than distinguish the light of Christ as you live with a faithful presence within the community that God has given you. Dependent on no one, but you personally responsible for the gospel as a steward, as a servant of the gospel that we love. This is how we grow. This is how we succeed. This is how each of us faithfully and fruitfully loves and lives to the glory of God on mission within the world. It's not just about gathering big crowds, more programs, hosting more events. No, we live faithfully present within the relationships and the context that God has given us. We're not isolationists, you know, to borrow some categories from James Hunter, a Christian sociologist who wrote a big book called To Change the World several years ago. But so often the, the, how we think to do this is, well, I need to seek purity from and withdrawing entirely from the world around us. Living isolated lifestyle like an Amish person. Or to just be relevant to and borrowing all the, you know, what is socially acceptable and, and, and trying to assimilate and integrate what is politically correct of the, of the day to earn credibility with the world around us so that there is no distinction. No, it's not that either. Nor is it to be defensive against and to seek, you know, influence so we can have a political or a societal takeover of our world. No, vertical faithfulness, vertical fruitfulness is each of us excited about Jesus, living a present within the, uh, the, the relationships and the context that God has given us, loving sacrificially, living simply, and leaving the door wide open for all those who would come to Christ. This is how we build. This is how we proceed in the future. This is how we go vertical to the glory of God by having this kind of presence. And though we may not be able to measure our efforts, though you may not be able to go to bed at night measuring things in terms of wins and losses or dollars and cents, at the end of the day, we can press on faithfully and fruitfully to the glory of God, knowing that he is being exalted in the midst of it all. And for that is a reason to praise God and also a reason that we need to pray and ask him to do what only he can do. Pray with me now again as we do just that. God in heaven, here we are. Here we are because of your love for us. And even as we have a, a you know, just a, 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 a kind of, a moment like this to examine our lives, to ask these questions. We, we tell you, thank you for Jesus. <laughs> Jesus, you're our only hope, uh, yet it's not in us. It's only through Jesus working in us, as we sung earlier. And so we fully embrace that even now. And yet, God, we do want our lives to matter. We do want to win. We do want to honor you. We do want to praise you. 
Lord, thank you that your commands are not burdensome, that these things to love sacrificially, to, uh, to, to live simply, to just walk properly amongst outsiders. Lord, thank you for your help. Thank you for your uh, example. Thank you for this community, this family of faith that we get to do this with. And so we trust you. We worship you uh, even now as we ask you to do that in us and through us and out from us this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.